Hello and welcome to We've Got History Between Us. You're listening to part two of episode nine. In this episode, we're going into more detail about the five-month internship that concluded at the Centre for Research Collections at the end of 2021. Project One is part of a long-term plan regarding university histories to understand what narratives and evidence of under or misrepresented communities can be found in the material that the CRC holds. In this part, you'll be hearing more from Lorraine about how three internship projects were created to deal with university histories. We'll go in depth on Project One, the staff that came on board, and we discuss the realities and the ramifications of underrepresentation. Three interns, Ashling, Samantha and Nuzat, delve deep into documentation concerning historical connections between Edinburgh University and transatlantic slavery. So the second half of this episode, we discuss the review that they created and how this material might be the beginning of addressing imbalance in the archival context. Well, I wanted to get a bit into the kind of internship project that we were going to talk about. A group of six interns started at the end of July 2021 regarding the University Histories Project. But taking it back before then, um, before the interns came on board, I'm imagining that there was quite a lot going on and, and you'd suggested that you were quite heavily involved in the project. Would you be able to say a little bit more about about that, about how the project was devised? Well, actually, behind the scenes, I didn't have that much involvement long before the internship project started. So I was I was really involved closer to when it started and in selecting the you know the people who would be involved and the type of work we've done. But all I can say really about how it was devised and what went into that is that. I think in many institutions and across the cultural heritage sector, across universities and and in other organisations, there's been a much greater focus on trying to draw out the stories and the kind of evidence of underrepresented communities or things that might have been bypassed before, including the way that collections have been described and how they're used. Uh, So generally across the organisation, there was a, a greater impetus to, do, to deal with this kind of imbalance in how collections material was being de- dealt with and, and how heritage collections were being uh, utilised. So after our head of special collections, Daryl Green, and uh, archives manager, Rachel Hosker, and many others across the CRC and the, the senior management in the university, got together to try and do practical work on our collections where we could really uh, address some of these issues. Um, and as far as, as far as the planning goes, the planning of the project, that's all I know in terms of uh, how, how they came about. You know, I think really what often happens in the university setting is there's a, a, a great idea and they want to go with it. And the best thing to do is try and set up something like an internship project, just get it started, get people in and mm. get the subject talked about and see how we get on basically and so I feel like that's how that's how we ran. Daryl Green could tell could tell you much more about the the discussions with the City of Edinburgh for example around how the collections of the university would link in with the the review that was done by uh, Edinburgh City mm. um, but really when I came on board was only a couple of months before the uh, a month or so before the project started and it was really to kind of get down to the nitty-gritty of what work will the interns be carrying out um so going from uh, a really good theme and idea or intention to pull out these stories and actually turning that into practical work that could be done day to day 
that would be legible and usable by us afterwards uh, to try and affect uh, change in the rest of the collections. Nice, yeah. Yeah, and you took the lead on starting the three projects. You were the line manager for project one. Mm -hmm. You also brought on the cataloguing archivist, Aline, on board and, and the uh, new college and school of Scottish studies archivist, Kirsty, for the other two. Would you be able to kind of give detail on what each of these project themes were? Yeah, sure. I mean, just a tiny bit more background about uh, why I suppose I was asked to to lead as well is is, is mm. again that uh, experience in collections reviews that I had been developing over the previous five years. And that was really that, you know, using the methodologies in place that we had to review any collection and that we would start to review these materials uh, along uh, with the with the interns, but to review these materials with uh, specific questions in mind and the perspective being drawing out these particular types of issues. And so we wanted to make sure that because the themes are so difficult to pin down, really in a mm -hmm. sense, that we would basically make an effort to describe our findings, but also incorporate basic appraisal cataloging structure and different kind of mandatory fields that we would need to uh, identify the collections and identify the records and locate them properly and assign open or closed status, for example, and basically to, to get them up to a standard where we could actually use them. Um, so one of the things I'll just mention here about dealing with um, these materials is that a lot of our collections, like in any archive or, or library or, or um, repository around the world, really, a lot of the collections are unprocessed or they haven't had much work done to them. They've been acquired or accessioned, but then really detailed project work is needed to get a, a collection from the point of accession to the point of access by readers and researchers. So a lot of the reviews that I carry out are on materials that have never been looked at before or processed before. And processed is another archival term that is a loaded term. It involves a lot of different tasks, but it's basically getting the material listed and identified and to understand more about its extent, etc. Mm -hmm. So it was really important that with all of this unprocessed material that we try and identify it reliably while also describing the content and, and, and why it was um, it had been chosen for this particular type of project work. So it was decided or sorry, first of all, I was asked to lead it because of the collections review methodology, but um, basically just I knew that both Kirsty and Aline, uh, my colleagues, archive uh, colleagues, would be incredibly kind of dedicated and, and, and useful and, and as, as mentors in this project or, or um, documenting all three of the projects really. Um, and that we knew we as well would be it would be essential for us all to be able to work together really closely to figure out step by step as we went along how to do the next bit because this is actually quite a new a new type of project work uh, for the CRC and I think of further afield as well. Mm. Um, their the projects were all remote, um, and so that was something that although we'd had a little bit of experience of and had to learn 
remote working ourselves over the past um, couple of years, having um, con you know consistent, relatively long term uh, projects where the entire entirety of the work was was remote and was was new to us as well. So so we knew we'd have to communicate on a regular basis about uh, what to do next. So. They kindly said they'd come on board and together we we thrashed out. We spent a couple of days really in in uh, one of the teaching centres in in the CRC trying to say, right, this is the theme. How do we do that? How do we actually get people to find material? But I think, yeah, we did a we did a fairly good job in this a small space of time. So from the upper level uh, themes that were identified, we devised three separate projects and that was basically project one was identifying the university's links to slavery in the trans transatlantic slave trade um, and where we could see this in our collections at the CRC, but also uh, across the city if, if we could incorporate that. The second project was specifically to look at student records and explore the um, underrepresented narratives that might be there that needed to be pulled out and hadn't been um, hadn't been seen before. And the third project was to look specifically at the student community and uh, pulling out underrepresented stories from the student community records and specifically published resources. So we can see kind of three different focuses there where there would be relatively different types of work, but are in order to keep track of all that work we wanted everybody to work in a relatively similar way by working into the collections review and telling us about the sources they were using and also writing a report to, to tell us about their findings. Mm, yeah kind of what you were saying before about you don't quite know what might be coming up or in demand 50 years later there's recently there's been so much in terms of uncovering ordinary people's stories, what has been captured of real lives or, or minority communities in a way that hadn't been in the past couple of decades. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think there are several issues there. First of all, there hasn't been or there wasn't in, um, before 2020 a real impetus to place these issues at front and centre in most organisations. We as archivists and conservators and librarians etc we've known that they were there and really tried um, to work on these issues as much as possible we didn't have the chance to as i said put them front and center and when we spoke to each other as an archives team we said this is our chance to really address uh, things like language terminology subjectivity and making choices around which records were given time and resources or which collections were given time and resources, which can be difficult. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, we'd had some conversation leading up to recording together and you talked about the way that these three themes had something of a common aim amongst perhaps the interns were going into slightly different collections, even though it, it was connected to this review. Would you be able to speak a little bit more about that kind of common aim? So, yeah. You're right, all three projects, even though they're slightly different perspectives or focuses, they did or they do have quite a common aim, and that is pulling out and highlighting 
subjects, stories, records, people, communities that haven't been in the public eye very much before. There is a danger, and this happens in all our organisations, whether they be libraries or archives or even just businesses or anywhere, where there's a, a danger of kind of just repetitive decision making and repetitive behaviours, and that can lead in places like archives to a real problem with historiography or saying, well, this is a type of collection that we usually promote or that we usually process and uh, provide access to. So we'll just do that with all the similar collections that come in or the similar type of individuals that we want to re represent or communities or anything else. Mm. What we're trying to do with this investigation across the three projects was to say uh, those choices uh, can be made just uh, blindly, I suppose, and that if some effort is put into asking the questions of why uh, records have been described in a certain way, why archives uh, have been chosen for certain research projects and, and omitted for certain attention, then we can start to kind of make a change as to what is promoted and what is highlighted. So there's things like the idea that omission from from the record, from our catalogues or from um, publications to do with our, our, our research sources, omission from those can be just as damaging or just as dangerous as having incorrect descriptions or incorrect representations of people. So for this, it was recognising the importance of being identified uh, where possible and that for people and communities uh, attached to these records, it's important to be recognised. So there is the common names as I've just described, but basically along the same timeline, I started attending and co-convening this group uh, called the Critical Archives Reading Group, hosted by the Centre for Data, Culture and Society at the university, but really it's just a, 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 a very informal teams call between myself, Neve Moore, Dr. Neve Moore in the uh, School of uh, Social and Political Sciences, who's a sociologist there, and uh, Lucy Havens, who's a PhD candidate in design informatics. And basically we started to talk about the crossover between archival practice, uh, archival theory, and also its effects in sociology, in anthropology, in design informatics, in so many different fields, and how important representation in the archives is for people across the world really you know um it is not just important for evidence that something happened but for people to feel a sense of belonging and recognition in the communities that they're from so in some of the readings there i learned about the term symbolic annihilation which i thought was a really fitting way of describing what it's like when a person or a community or an event is completely omitted from the formal record. And that can be an incredibly damaging experience for people to not be represented in the archive specifically, as opposed to other um, parts of society like, like the media, although it does apply to the media as well. So in a sense, we're, what we're really trying to do in a, in a very practical way is address that damaging symbolic annihilation that people can feel the, when they're not seen in the archive. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
by symbolic annihilation, we're talking about that kind of absence and that lack of representation, right? Absolutely. Exactly that, that that to to be uh, omitted from or not mentioned is to be annihilated, basically, uh, whether that's kind of, um, I suppose, in the physical form, that's like nuclear annihilation. And then in the symbolic form, that's like being absent from um, from evidence, absent from a lack of presence, <laughs> I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And what you were saying about, you know, sometimes we can be guilty of getting comfortable in some of the narratives that we've already established and have said before and the people that are kind of left on the peripheries of that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all, it's all about perspective. So we're actually uh, a lot of the time looking at the same material, the same collections and the same fields of, of, of research, for example, or the same departmental records or donated collections. But it's slightly shifting the, the the way that you're looking at the material or the perspective at which you're looking at the material to be more inclusive of different experiences and to interrogate and question the way that people, communities or events have been described. Mm -hmm. This desire to prevent symbolic annihilation, would, um, were these aims coming from the hopes of the archival team at the CRC? I would say Broadly speaking, yes, we have been working together and the CRC is unique in a lot of ways because in many organisations and around in and around uh, the UK, Ireland, Europe, further afield, there's only maybe one or, or uh, at most two archives professionals working with collections and having to make these decisions across huge volumes of material. At the CRC, we're incredibly lucky because we have at any one time, a great number of archivists working together and they're all from different backgrounds, different perspectives. Lots are on projects, very specific projects, but we communicate very closely and we debate and discuss these topical issues on a regular basis. And as I was saying before, there's the Critical Archives Reading Group, which most of the archives team have participated in on a regular basis. That's once a month. But we also discuss these issues once a week as a, as a team as well. Um, mm -hmm. And we're such a large team, always on the same side about whether or not this is important, you know. <laughs> so we, mm. we all feel that this is part of our vocation, part of our careers to, to make a, a positive, uh, if slow, inward step towards making better descriptions and better catalogues and more representative collections. We're well used to, I mean, archive, archivists in general are well used to kind of um, having to make very, very tiny um, bits of progress. Uh, when, you're, when you work with archives, you have to get used to doing huge amounts of work for almost invisible levels of progress sometimes, because sometimes the, the changes even to one collection can take many years, never mind to the, the larger field or the, um, the sector in general. So we are used to, as a team, making very slow inroads to making a difference in, in collection development and collection representation. But yeah, everybody was completely dedicated to that and, and still is. It's like that, I can't remember the full quote, but it's about the whole planting trees that you're, you want to sit under the shade of. 
Yeah, it, it can be so important or it can be quite lonely work when you don't have a sounding board like that. And it's not necessarily that you're not um, very capable at your job or applying these kind of methodologies that you've you've been practicing, but it's just having those conversations and articulating these things. It's kind of what we were saying before, it can be so difficult. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right there that it's not even that you're using a wrong methodology or, or going down a wrong path. It's that for many of these decisions, you can make one decision or the other. And, you know, they're really quite similar or they don't make that much of a difference or they do. But you just have to stick with it and be consistent. And I suppose the whole ethos that I've tried to develop around the collection reviews methodologies at the CRC and around appraisal is that the work is very hard, but we do it anyway. And this comes directly from my reading of uh, people like theorist Terry Cook in appraisal, which is that you can't always fix on 100% the right answer, but you must do the work anyway and keep on moving forward. And so for me, we just try to make these decisions. We try to make inroads. But the, cru the crucial element is that we want to be accountable for it and document it in such a way that we can say, well, this is the group of decisions. This is the path of decisions that we made in in and around the early 21st century at the at the CRC. If another archivist or group of archivists in 50 or 100 years needs to make a different decision, will they have all of this information about why we made the original decision that can help them on their way? And so, yeah, your your analogy was was perfectly correct there about, you know, a, a, a tree that takes a long time to grow and you don't really get to see it flourishing all the time when you're working on large scale collections and archives that continuously grow because the organization is continuously growing. But the the major for me, the major issue around why omissions have happened in the past or why catalogues have been developed in certain ways without uh, without question or why certain language has been used and not other mm -hmm. language that's more inclusive is because we don't know why the decisions were made or who made them or you know what pressures were on them or whether they thought about these things and now we're making sure that we have described where we were and why we thought what we thought at this time mm -hmm. and, sorry a final bit on that is it always reminds me, and I think I said this to you before, it reminds me of the process that DNA biologists go through um, when looking at forensic evidence that you kind of use the same tools or the same methodologies to get answers around uh, forensic evidence. But because human beings have different perspectives when they're looking at the same evidence, the process with that kind of forensic evidence uh, assessment is that two people always discuss their findings before making a final decision or it's never just one person that makes the decision. So that's similar actually for archives and for specifically for appraisal and collections review is that the the final decision or the final recommendations about whether or not to keep something or how to describe it or what sources to use and the language that you use and everything. We discuss that as a team in a way to double authorise or triple authorise everything that we are trying to achieve to, to, to make sure that we're getting as rounded a perspective as we can. Mm. Yeah, almost creating that institutional memory alongside 
the, the literal work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the interns kind of started in that tangible way of, of physically going in depth, but with this real idea of looking towards the theoretical, were you, or perhaps, you know, working towards the many, many PhDs could, that could come out of this, were you aware of what resources your interns would be sifting through before the project started? maybe in terms of all the names that you were getting listed from the council or was it a question of kind of just finding out what was stored in in the unique collections i think just to be totally upfront there are some collections that we have where we know there's going to be certain material that's going to be really rich in this in this uh, in this perspective but to be honest my focus was on accurate documentation of what they did find Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's from a very, very famous collection of a particular individual or from a collection or a group of papers that we'd never seen before, they were to treat them in the same way. So we wanted as much description as possible around collections that were very popular, equally as much description as possible around collections that had never been accessed. You know, to the credit of the interns that they kind of got past the lack of information sometimes that was there and we're able to give us a good description anyway is that what we said is if there's not enough information in the catalogues or in the um, uh, sources then just say what is there or what you can describe and move on to the next thing because he wants to just keep going basically <laughs> so invariably because my role is so usually very kind of practical with the appraisal and collections review focus I I make sure that they have a good kind of working ethos around reviewing collections and treating the collections in as with as much parity as possible, basically. Mm -hmm. So we decided early on that we would rather add any mention of these themes that was in any way possibly connected. For example, it had the right dates, it had the right you know individuals mentioned or the right locations mentioned. Um, and in that data gathering exercise, list everything and explain this is a definitive example of links between slave trade and Edinburgh, or this is a possible link. So those things still have to be in the kind of next phase or the second phase of this project or this endeavour. We're hoping that this work will be you know, ongoing into the future so that we can do layers and layers of filtering down to understand which are the exact records which evidence the links at the moment we just have I mean it's still very useful but we have a large body of possibilities for records that show possibilities of links some of them more definite than others yeah yeah I think it was Samantha who was talking about there's some people that pop up so much and that doesn't necessarily mean that they are connected heavily that means they just love chatting <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah and it shows I mean, this is this is something that often happens when working with with archives. I know there's a lot, there are a lot of readers or people who make inquiries of archivists, and they sometimes wonder how does how does the archive archivist not know the answer to that question off the top of their head? And usually, the archivist will be thinking, well, it all depends. It depends on 
which bit you want or which type of conversation you're looking at or which specific piece of information is relevant. So yeah, in this first foray into data gathering, we populated a review that can be used, I think, for years to come now to, to pull out really, really good information, refine it down so it's absolutely accurate where necessary change our own information around the item for you know deeper cataloging changes and descriptions more robust records showing what records are what the to topics and themes are and where they're located um, and that'll be our work whereas there's also then the work of the wider research community to to delve into those records and, and pull out the connections and describe those connections in a deeper way than we we ever could as collection managers because uh, we're, we're all working on different perspectives or different aspects of the of the material i suppose mm. yeah so my primary focus um because of my experience with collections review and appraisal is that the, is making sure that the interns have a good ethos and they're comfortable and confident about um, reviewing the collections, whether or not they're really, really popular, well used, uh, high profile collections or whether they're, you know, collections that have never been seen before. So my focus is always on making sure that the information is good, the data is good so that we can we can use it in future to refine. Um, and that really comes from a, a very of archives 101 principle of going from the general to the specific as long as we've got everything down we've got the general as in everything has got some sort of description and it's got the information that we need in order to progress uh, that's what my focus is because from there on in we can start omitting irrelevant information and uh, promoting or highlighting information that is really really relevant and also knitting together different materials within the same collections also different collections that have never been um, related before and crucially our own collections with external collections or papers so things from around the united kingdom ireland europe states that could fulfill a picture so if you can imagine in most repositories you usually just have a one sided story and you can you can grapple together what has happened because you have an idea of the the contents of one side of the conversation. Whereas I feel like if we do all this data gathering and then we start to make links with the repositories that hold the other side of the story, then we can make real progress here. And I think mm -hmm. that is a, a serious. Um, it's actually a very simple but serious method of addressing imbalances in representation. If we're always looking to review the collections and the catalogues and the descriptions, etc., in high profile, long established, large colonial institutions, then we're still only looking at one side of the story. And it's not until we start to make really good, solid, consistent links with repositories that have the records of what actually happened on the other side that we see the effects of slavery the effects of uh, transatlantic slave trade the the effect on people who have been colonized how their lives panned out how their localities their environments their countries were affected by merchant traders by industrymen by you know high profile bankers 
by high-profile politicians or men from the Enlightenment. We won't really be able to raise the profile or address the imbalances in representation until we have links between the records of the high-profile individuals and the records of the people they affected. Mm. So included in the review, there are some really high-profile individuals and industries in Edinburgh um, that were are, are very are very well known across the world. The evidence of of their impact in places like Jamaica or Cote d'Ivoire or Ireland or South America, etc. Those effects are, are less well known and if we can use the function of related materials in our archives catalogues, which is going back to the very technical all of a sudden, if we can use that as a real simple method of addressing the imbalance, I think we should we should do that. Mm. I'll stop there yeah. about the topic because I'm going around in circles. I thought almost thought about it too much. Like lying awake at night, I thought about it. <laughs> five o'clock in the morning, how are we going to do this? How are we going to show a different side of the story? Because if we don't have the other side, I don't know what committees of academics and professors are going to really be able to do. Do you know, I feel like uh, from a very personal perspective, this is my own, my own working ethos. And my own ethos as just an individual who's really tired of these injustices. That the focus needs to come away from high profile, high level, high academia institutions and look towards the people themselves and what happened. They've been in charge and have been allowed to construct the narratives for decades or centuries. Yeah, so Exactly, for decades, for centuries. And so, yeah, I think there's a really, uh, it's a really good exercise to try and pull out different types of information from these high profile historic collections. But really, it's the same old stuff and it's the same old perspective. It's important, but it's the same stuff. It's the same journey. And actually, something that is maybe a one liner in a really famous uh, individual's history, you know, like this individual helped to draft uh, a treaty between uh, one island and another or a trade agreement between two colonies. That sentence had massive ramifications for sometimes tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And so that one sentence can transpire into the histories of many, many uh, underrepresented people. And they're the kind of connections that I think will really make a difference. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating and it's it's going to take a hell of a lot of time. Oh, yeah, decades. I mean, again, we've talked about this before, but for me, I feel like a lot of the work, uh, and certainly in appraisal, appraisal and collections review, and just in my own career generally, is laying the groundwork for changes that won't happen until I'm long gone, until 100 years from now. So making changes to, to how history is represented in the archives is not going to take one team of archivists in one university it's going to take a, a paradigm change across the world and it's mm, all you can do is try and be part of it because we're not we're never going to see the benefits the kind of benefits we hope for 
before mm. retired or even long gone. <laughs> This has been part two of episode nine, the longest episode in this seven-part series. In this next episode, we shine a spotlight on Samantha Carey, one of the three interns who took part in Project One. You've been listening to We've Got History. These episodes were recorded in December 2021 and March 2022. This was part of episode nine. The guests were Lorraine McLaughlin, Ashlyn Cudney and Samantha Carey. Episode hosted and edited by Lily Mellon.